This is episode 141 of the Solier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Tyler Dahl. He is a bilingual Spanish-speaking attorney and founder of the law offices of Tyler Q. Dahl. His practice focuses on representing business owners in business law, succession planning, and tax planning matters. He has been selected as a Super Lawyers Rising Star of Northern California for four consecutive years. Mr. Dahl is also one of less than 100 attorneys in the United States who is also a certified tax coach and possesses a creative business lawyer designation by the Family Wealth Planning Institute. He is active with local nonprofits and has served on the board of the Solo Small Practice Division of the Sacramento County Bar Association for over five years. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Tyler. Hi, Teresa. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here and, and, and talk with you about this exciting, exciting topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So tell the people a little bit about who you are. Yeah. So my name is Tyler Dahlman, a business attorney here in Sacramento, California. Helping, We help a lot of our clients, uh, you know, form entities, negotiate and draft contracts. Some, you know, if they want to purchase another company, we do, you know, any, some, some, uh, you know, asset purchases and the stock purchases, things like that too. So yeah. So that's kind of a quick rundown of, of who I am again here in Sacramento. And yeah, that, that's pretty, that's pretty quick. Uh, who I am. Yeah. So how did you get roped into this podcast? How did we find you? Well, um, (laughs) where should I start? Well, I had a, I had a woman who participated in your program, reach out to me, uh, just pretty much wondering, Hey, you know, I, you know, I went through this program with with Teresa and there's a lot of uncertainty around whether or not, you know, mobile fees procedures in California are legal. And so she kind of reached out to my firm and we did a lot of digging at first. I mean, a lot, a lot of digging. I'll talk a little bit about that later, but did a bunch of digging and sort of kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, like anything in the law, there's no definite yes, but there's more likely than not. I think, think the general consensus after, you know, our research is that, yeah, I think you no know, mobile fees procedures are permitted here in California. And so it kind of started with just uh, one person reaching out. And the more I dug down the rabbit hole, the more, the more I found and, um, it, was, it was pretty pretty exciting to kind of dig deep into this um, and research everything. So that's kind of how. And then, you know, of course, uh, some women that participate in your program reached out after that, trying to, again, get a grasp on how to do it legally. Uh, and so that kind of that's kind of where it all started. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, you know, once I first talked to you and you were like, well, now I'm really invested in this. Like now I know that like people need this. <laughs> and it was funny to hear you're like, now I'm invested in it. <laughs> Definitely. Well, also, too, you know, part of it is when you're helping clients, especially in the legal arena, right? I mean, you really have to know their business and know it. Um, So I had to, you know, I had I do a lot of research and investigation into just fees procedures generally and how they benefit patients and the lack of accessibility of these procedures that that, you know, why the laws changed and before there was a severe lack of, you know, accessibility of the procedures. And so I always tell people, and, you know, all the women that I've worked with, 
not to say there's no men or anything, right? But all the women I've worked with, they're just pleasant people too, right? And so I've kind of become a huge mobile fees proponent, I guess you could say, you know, after doing all that research and it, it and um, how it can help people and all that. Yeah. So awesome. Well, I'm glad we got you to drink the Kool-Aid because we all right? love it too. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, awesome. All right. So where should we start with? Is it legal? Yeah, like, so is it legal? Um, so I think there's a lot of confusion around whether it's legal or not, because, you know, obviously the law wasn't, wasn't drafted very clearly, right? So what, how the law, so it's California Business and Profession Code is what um, is, you know, where all these, where the law is uncertain. You know, there's, there's one section that says that, you know, you have to have the, you know, you have to have the certified otolaryngologist, right? That's what they're called. Yeah. The otolaryngologist, you have to have a certified otolaryngologist, you know, say in writing that, you know, you've performed at least 25 procedures and then those in that same section, it says that if you, when you perform these procedures, it has to be under the direct authorization and supervision of, you know, physician and a surgeon. So obviously, you know, that, you know, most of the time with the fees procedures, we've got somebody who is in an acute, you know, hospital type setting, and now they're at, you know, a non-acute setting, such as a skilled nursing facility, right? And it's it's pretty difficult to have a physician. I mean, they're just not there, right? I mean, they're not there. And so, so in that section, it says that, and then there's another section a little bit, uh, you know, further on in this, in this set of codes that says that, you know, you have to have emergency protocols in place and then at the facility you're performing the procedure. And then uh, there has to be, you know, a physician. Uh, and then again, this is ambiguous too, but there has to be a physician and a surgeon or another medical professional readily available is the wording they use readily available. Right. And so when you kind of read those together, you know, the way I interpret it at least is that, hey, you know, when you're getting that initial written authorization from the otolaryngologist, of course, you know, you, you got to have, you got you to be supervised, right? Um, and and you, you do have to have that, that written authorization with you for examination by the board, of course, right? So, so the way I read it is, hey, the direct supervision has to be performed when we're getting that initial 25 procedure, when we're doing those initial 25 procedures. And then after that, we can go to, you know, procedures you're just performing generally. And the reason why, and another reason why I sort of came to that conclusion as, you know, legal professional too, is that, you know, obviously that code, that law that says, you know, we have to have the the physician and surgeon or medical professional readily available. You know, what I did is, you know, obviously it's ambiguous. So when something's ambiguous, we got to dig a little deeper, right? So we went in and looked at, you know, when was this law enacted, right? And so we looked at the Senate bill, uh, the law that was there previously, and the law that was there previously said there needs to be direct supervision, right? So that's, that's pretty clear, right? Direct supervision is direct supervision. And um, I mean, you can't really misinterpret that, right? Direct authorization and supervision is kind of what they, what they used. So that was the previous law. And then what happens is the Senate bill came to the floor, people were discussing it. And so we went back and sort of looked at, well, what was the discussion around this? Right. And a lot of the discussion was, again, like I said, the lack of accessibility of these fees procedures. Right. I mean, um, you know, the hospitals just aren't doing them anymore. And, you know, these people essentially what happened, well, 
one of the main proponents was the California Speech Language Hearing Association. They essentially were a proponent and said, hey, look, this is what's happening. Exactly what I said before. We're having patients that are in acute settings. They're in the hospital. They're being transferred to a non-acute setting. Again, more, you know, a skilled nursing facility. And they have some of these swallowing disorders. And they're really not getting access to these fees procedures because, again, there's nobody there to perform them. And they have to go all the way back to, you know, in, you know, into the hospital again to have these procedures performed. And it's just impractical, yep. right? Yep, very much so. So that discussion happened. And then they, they honed in on this language, right, that, you know, that, that these procedures have to be performed under, you know, upon request of a physician and under the general supervision of a physician or medical director of a medical facility. And that's kind of what the history of the bill showed. So, again, in my opinion, and I'm, you know, and I, I always tell people, of course, there's a certain amount of risk, right? The law is ambiguous. But in my opinion, I very firmly believe that, you know, legislative intent behind this law was very, very clear that we really want to increase accessibility of these fees procedures. And there's really no other way to do it. If you look at the practical aspects of performing these procedures, there's really, there's practically speaking, absolutely no other way to do that. And so that's kind of how you know, I came to the position that I am today. And, and after doing all this research, again, feeling, feeling very firmly that I think these mobile fees procedures are permitted here in California. I would hope sometime in the future, there would be a little bit more clarity. Yeah. I'm um, hoping there would be another law passed to, to, to clarify that. But uh, that's sort of a really, I could get, I could go on all day about it, but that's sort of the short uh, version of, of, again, the legalities of actually performing the mobile fees procedures in California. And just a quick word from one of our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Craig Goldslager of Utterly Financial. The most common misstep SLPs make with their financial planning is not starting today. The second most common misstep is partnering with the wrong advisor. Craig works exclusively with us, SLPs and private practitioners across the country. As we talk about hiring employees with Tyler, you are now responsible for offering a competitive benefits package so you can attract and retain talented employees. This includes retirement plans like 401k and insurance plans like health, disability, and life insurance. Craig knows what he's talking about and can help you implement strategies to fill these insurance and retirement planning gaps. As a business owner myself, I have learned that the only way to grow is to delegate responsibilities. And you guys have talked about, heard me talk about this many times. There's no way in heck I could do all of this alone. So working with a financial advisor like Craig is critical. So he has opened his calendar exclusively to listeners of the Swallow Your Pride podcast is offering a free 30-minute consultation that you should take advantage of. So visit www.utterlyfinancial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. That's utterly, U-T-T-E-R-L-Y, financial.com forward slash SYP. Awesome. Yeah. So I think, you know, you talk to some camps and they're like, yeah, it's allowed. They they're letting it happen. And you talk to other camps and they're like, no, it's strictly prohibited. So it's like, you know, where, where did we go wrong here? And, and, and I like the way that you explained it, that the original intent was this, but then obviously they rewrote it for a reason. Yeah. And you just, I mean, look at, uh, yeah, just look at the legislative intent. I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty clear there that and then again, considering the practice, I mean, this was only, and I want to check my facts. So this was in, you know, 2006 when they, when this new Senate bill was passed. So, you know, it was, I mean, if we're looking at it, it was some time ago, but relatively speaking in the mobile fees world, from my understanding, I mean, 
you know, I, I don't think the situation has changed all that much from then to now in terms of the accessibility of the procedures and all that, right? I mean, yeah. Can you clarify what the interpretation of readily available would be? Yes, that's a great question. So readily available. And again, this is another place where there's a certain amount of risk, right? There's ambiguity. Readily available based on the legislative intent seems to mean, you know, some sort of general supervision. Okay. Now, what's the difference between, you know, general supervision and direct supervision, right? Right. I think direct supervision is obviously just seeing the person perform the procedure right then and there. I think my interpretation of general supervision is, and, and the readily available, what I tell people is that preferably there's some physician or, or you know, on staff, right, presently and readily available on the premises, and a lot of times the medical directors who are at the facilities, they're, they're all, they may be a physician too as well. But, you know, preferably that's what you'd like. But at the very, very least, you know, having the readily available to me also means, you know, hey, in a more lax sense, are they available? Are they on call? If something happened, are we able to call them? Are they readily available to come and mitigate any risk or, or any adverse reaction to the procedure, Right. Again, most of the time, there's not a physician on staff, so we have to try to be comfortable with that readily available, meaning they need to be on call, they need to be readily available to be at the at the actual facility within a very, very short period of time. You know, what I tell people who are performing the procedures, when you go into the facility, you know, get the information of a physician or other medical professional on call, maybe their MPI, their MPI maybe obviously their phone number, document that. Uh, and make sure that you documented that this person, this this these the physician is readily available, whoever that might be. Beautiful. So that's generally what we recommend. And again, not totally clear, but if we're talking about the practicalities of performing mobile fees procedures at particular particularly skilled nursing facilities, a lot of times there's really not a physician there, you know, on right. site. Right. Is there a way to track down this person that wrote this really ambiguous? I know. I so frustrating. I mean, you know, valiant effort, but yeah, I mean, it was something that honestly got rushed through, and they they probably you know, they they probably thought it. Obviously, they didn't think it through, but yeah, yeah, and it just yeah. led you to hours and hours and hours and hours of research. So yeah, and again, though, I mean, it's still leading to the lack of accessibility of procedures because of all the hesitation on what is it legal, is it not? And again, that's that's also not good too because these procedures can really help people. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing we recommend too that people have is, you know, an agreement between them and of course the the whatever facility they're performing the services at. And most of the time I think uh, a lot of them a lot of the, the people who are performing the mobile fees procedures are sticking to one geographic region and pretty surprisingly cooperating, uh, at least the ones, you know, I've talked to. So you know, having them sign an agreement and then getting and then having an informed consent that the patient would sign to. I think those are obviously very important to have in the agreement. You know, we've come up with an agreement that we believe and we haven't really gotten much pushback at all. that I can really recall from, you know, these facilities, but the agreement kind of, you know, it has to be something that Pat, that'll pass muster with the legal team at the facilities. Right. Because if, if it's just totally one-sided for, you know, the speech language pathologist, whoever's performing the procedure, of course, it's going to, you're going to have to go through all these different, you know, the legal team's going to get a hold of it, all these edits. And so it might be very difficult for you to actually, you know, get to perform the procedures. But nonetheless, having that agreement in place is, is 
you know, obviously very important too. Yeah. So, yeah. And then again, when you're getting into the facility, you know, document the documenting that facility's emergency backup protocols, right? Because you are, that is a requirement that they have it. So they have to have it and, and they all will, right? Just they may be a little different. So documenting that and then documenting the physician or other medical professional, that's going to be the one who's, you know, quote unquote, readily available, right? So yeah, I think that's, that's a little bit, uh, not too much else. Like I said, there's a lot more I could talk about, but I think that's a good, you know, summary of, of the legality. Beautiful. You want to talk a little bit about corporate structure for, for anybody having a business as a speech pathologist in California? Yeah, absolutely. And the laws are a little different state to state, but they'll generally be pretty similar. So there's a, there, most of the people that come to me uh, looking to perform these mobile fees procedures, they realize that there's, you know, there's a little bit of risk involved, right? I mean, we're talking anything in the medical services industry has a pretty significant amount of risk. But although the, the fees procedures are pretty, I mean, we got nosebleeds and some other things like that. It's not, but they're not too, they're not too dangerous, in, in my opinion, at least. But, you know, you can obviously perform these services as just a person and you don't have a corporation, you don't have any entity, so to speak, right? But there's potentially a lot of risk involved in that. Again, we're talking about medical services. There could be a number of things that could happen and, you know, most people choose to set up a company in order to, you know, perform their services through the company. Here in California, if you're going to perform professional services, then you need to have what we call a professional corporation. There's, there's different like partnership structures you can use. But again, the people that I've helped out, it's just one owner. So we really have to focus in on the professional corporation. So professional service anywhere from you know lawyers doctors and you know uh, engineers to again speech language pathologists i mean all these different types of professional services that are offered they have to be again done through professional corporations so you know a lot of the people will go uh, although i don't generally recommend it will go online and um, they'll they'll kind of get through the initial step of you know setting up the company I think it's really important. I've seen a few times where people just form a, just a general kind of purpose corporation, right? And it's not a professional corporation. Let me just, we got to shut it down and <laughs> open up a new one, right? And that can be a little costly and obviously frustrating because it takes time to set these things up sometimes. And then, you know, in other states, uh, they, they may allow other types of structures, but I think doing your due diligence and looking at the particular state that you're in, no matter, it, but there's probably going to be restrictions on the type of entity you can have, especially if you're performing these professional services. So, Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. With obviously the professional corporation, you, you have to be a licensed professional to be an owner and to, and usually on the board, sometimes they allow an officer. So we sometimes we have like a spouse or somebody else who can come in and serve as like a secretary of the corporation. They don't have to be licensed. But again, you got to be very careful about that because um, most of the time, everybody but you know select few officers do have to be licensed. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. Because I know I've seen a company or two that are just like an LLC. And I'm like, no, you need to be a professional corporation. Because I know it's the same. I'm in New York. And I know it's the same way here, too. Yeah. And then going down that rabbit hole, there's a ton of different ways to structure your corporation. You know, you can have it a C corporation, which means it's taxed on the profits of the corporation. Then again, when you take the money out or an S corporation, which profits sort of pass through to your personal income tax returns. So 
Um, again, most of the time, that's corporation is what we're advising people to set up, but it does depend on the circumstances. Double taxation sounds bad, but there can be um, there's certain aspects of a C corporation that are better than S corporation, and so sometimes we'll choose the C corporation. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah, but yeah, that's about it. I think. Um, yeah, that's about it. Again, I think you know having the informed consent and the other agreements too is extremely important as well. Let me ask you, Tyler. I've heard that. Is it true that you cannot have independent contractors in California? I was going to mention that. So, so that is revolving around what is what is kind of so what we are calling AB five Assembly Bill five is what the the Assembly Bill was that uh, instituted all these new laws. And how it works generally is that you can you you can't hire somebody as an independent contractor if they're performing the services that your company is mainly offering, right? In in your ordinary course of business, you say. So if you if you're a speech language pathologist, you're performing mobile fees procedures. A lot of the people I talk to again are having their 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 kind of focused on the future, right? Maybe I'll hire somebody. And we do have to have that conversation that if you're going to hire somebody to perform mobile fees procedures, they do have to be an employee. Okay. Now, if there are, there obviously are some exceptions to that, right? Like if you wanted to, you know, maybe if you have a professional corporation and you wanted to sort of, you know, sub out the mobile fees work to another corporation, and it could be, somebody who owns another corporation too and performs those procedures, you know, that generally is fine because they have a legitimate independent business. They have a corporation or an entity set up and they're, they're a bona fide independent business, right? But if you're just looking to hire a mobile, somebody to perform mobile fees procedures and maybe they're a nurse or I don't know what, you know, they're, they're, they've got their day job, so to speak. And this is sort of kind of a side job. They, they do have to be an employee. Um, if you if you pay them as an independent contractor, there's a lot of risk there. Um, you know, one would be that they would they would potentially be able to sue you for employment law violations, which can be very very costly. The other would be the employment develop the employment development department of California, and they can come in and audit all of you know all of your records. And essentially, what happens is if you're not paying them as an employee, then of course you've not been paying payroll taxes and all that stuff. And they'll, you know, assess fines and penalties and all of that. Again, you can get, you know, franchise tax or an IRS involved potentially too. But main, the main two dangers are the employment law violations and, and the risk that comes with liability there. And as well as, you know, the employment development department coming in. Gotcha. So let me ask you, because I think from my understanding of, of the dangers of having an employee is that there's you know, we're doing, we're doing a medical procedure, obviously, and it's someone under my umbrella that's doing the procedure. And if something, if something were to go wrong, they were, something were to happen, they would come after my company, even though that was the person that was performing the procedure. You know, so my understanding is that, you know, medical people that are performing independent procedures should be independent contractors for that reason, but now you're making them an employee. And I, and I think that's what's hard is that there's so many people get trained in different ways. People go to different, they go to different trainings. They're mentored by different people. They're supervised by different people. So it's difficult to 
I think, assess somebody's skills to be confident enough to bring them on as an employee. I think that those are the red flags that jump up to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one way to sort of minimize the risk in regards to that is, you know, potentially purchasing some sort of, you know, professional liability insurance for that person. You know, I, th- I think that's obviously something that you, you got to do. I think that'll help, help the risk, but it does make it difficult, right? It's kind of, you're picking the, the, the best of the, of the two worst scenarios. I mean, right, right. it's very difficult. I mean, there's no, there's no way to completely get rid of the risk. Right. But what, what comes greater, you know, again, I think that's something that I look back to a lot with the, the mobile fees procedures. Now there is a certain degree of risk, right. But generally, um, you know, they're, they're fairly safe. And then, you know, you're talking about employee too. We're talking about getting, you know, being familiar with the state laws, right? Like meal periods and rest periods and all of that. It yeah. It very burdensome. Absolutely. That stuff makes me dizzy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I mean, I know in New York, yeah, in New York here, the employment laws are just insane. And I'm, yeah, they yeah, make me want to puke every time I read them. I know. And they change every year. <laughs> very, I probably New York, same thing, but here they're very employee friendly, very employee yeah. friendly. So yeah. that can add an additional layer of complexity and, you know, risk. But I think that risk to me is easier to manage than the, the my perspective, at least easier to manage than the risk of, you know, hiring somebody as an independent contractor when they're really an employee, because a lot extremely clear there. I mean, it's abundantly clear that, that this person would be, you know, an employee. So again, few exceptions, but generally speaking. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, and you know, another thing with AB five and the California laws here is that, I mean, we still, you know, the laws can still change, right? I mean, I think we're going to find that there's going to be some carve out and exceptions to these laws that are going to come in the, in the months you know, years to come, right? You know, we think about the Lyft and Uber and all the, you know, political, you know, lobbying power that they have here in the state. I think obviously, you know, the coronavirus is distracting everybody from that. But I think once that subsides and, you know, people kind of get, we get on with our, you know, our lives before, you know, pre, you know, coronavirus, I think that that's something that's going to probably ramp up a little bit. But also too, something to think about as well is that with most of these employment laws, Usually California is kind of on the front lines of instituting these types of laws. And so I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of even the more, you know, politically speaking, a lot of the more um, states that are more democratic friendly, let's say, that they'll probably be instituting the same or similar laws in the future, too. So I think it's even if you're not in California, I think it's something just to keep your keep um, your ears to the ground on. Well, thank you. Yeah. Crazy world out there. Very much so. Yeah. Crazy world. So, yeah, I think New York and California are very similar in that the employment law stuff. So, yeah. And again, they, they change every year. But, you know, for the most part, like I said, we, you know, getting good insurance, I think, is, you know, always a good idea. Um, they even have EPL and um, employee. It's, it's basically employee ins- liability insurance, essentially, where. You know, if an employee sues the company for employment law violations, the insurance will kick in too. So a lot of our, a lot of our, you know, a lot of our clients choose to. They can be a little expensive depending on the employees you have, but that you know, there's you know almost anything you can insure at these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Um, anything else, Tyler? Did we cover everything? I think that's pretty much it. I'm trying to think. I know. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Awesome. All right. 
Any final thoughts? I know my final thoughts would be, you know, obviously, you know, if you're going to do the mobile fees procedures, you know, do your due diligence. Uh, I know a lot, all the people that come to our office and ask, uh, they've, they've done that. And I know that your program, you do a great job at, you know, identifying some of these risks. So do, do your homework, do your due diligence, you know, do it the right way and, and we'll all win. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. All right. No problem. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.